Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel. I thought it good to continue our study in 1 Samuel together this morning. Last week, we were in the book of Ruth for a one-shot in that wonderful little book for Mother's Day. But the week before that, we were in 1 Samuel looking at the capture of the ark and God's judgment upon the Philistines and the return of the ark by God's power. And so we're going to continue where we left off there in 1 Samuel this morning, where we see that Israel demands a king in 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12. Having finished our study in Romans last year and gone through the study of the Gospel of Mark, the latter half and the beginning of this year, it's good to spend a little bit of time in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, because... The new is built upon the foundation of the old. And while we call it the old covenant, that doesn't mean that it's not something that we should be reading and studying and be built up in our faith by what was written for us. I always like to say, quoting from Scripture, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so God has given us instruction and it's good for us to get some of these great stories that are contained in the Old Testament. We've got another one to be built up in our faith today. As we've been going through some of these Old Testament stories together, we've highlighted the stubbornness of Israel and the goodness of God. And I want to give you a kind of a, a big picture of where we are in the story here so we can locate Israel's demand for a king in 1 Samuel in their overarching history. So the stubbornness of Israel was seen not only during the days of Moses as the Bible begins with the Pentateuch, but then continuing into the period of the Judges who ruled over Israel after the death of Joshua, that Israel was in a constant state of rebellion against the Lord and disobedience to God's instruction. And yet God was good, God was faithful to his people, that he delivered them from the hands of their enemies when they cried out to him. And so that is where we are in the story of Scripture. God gave them victory after victory during the days of Joshua, and yet they experienced defeat after defeat during the period of the judges due to their own unfaithfulness. Let's pick up the story then in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'd like to read for you the first eight verses where we see Israel demanding a king. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me, and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them 
and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, the elders of Israel gather together to Samuel. He's been judging the people of Israel for decades. Samuel's story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1 with his special birth. We find out that he becomes a prophet of the Lord as a young man. And as God delivers the people of Israel through this judge, Samuel, he is the best and the last of all of the judges. Speaking of Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, that Samuel comes in and he finishes what Samson had failed to finish and that he is leading the people of Israel as their prophet and as their judge for a long period of time. However, as we saw in the text, when he becomes old, he tries to appoint his sons to take over for him and they are not prepared. They are not spiritual men like their father. This is a tragic story that we find repeated throughout the Old Testament that godly men often do not have godly children. It's one of the Achilles heels of the people of Israel throughout their history. And, and that's the case, sadly, with Samuel. Such a great man, and yet his sons did not walk in his ways. And so we see that the elders decide it's time for a king. They've had it with the period of the judges. They've got a solution to Israel's problem. Now, the problem here is that the elders recognize that there is a problem, but they don't diagnose the proper cause of the problem, and therefore they come up with the wrong treatment for what is ailing the people of Israel. They think that what we need is a king. A king is going to solve our problems. They look back at their last few hundred years of history and they think, well, we've been defeated by this group and by this group and by this nation and by these enemies. And you know what all these other enemies that are defeating us have in common? They have a king. And their king gives them a unity and their king gives them a standing army and their king goes out and defeats us. And so the solution to our problem, Samuel, is we need a king. We need to be like the other nations. There is the tragedy in their request when they say, a king to judge us like all the nations. When God had created the people of Israel, he created them to be different from all of the other nations. And God created the people of Israel not without a king, for he had given them the perfect king in his own person. God was the king of Israel. He was their lawgiver. He was their judge. He was the one who led them in military victory all the days of Moses and all the days of Joshua. And if the people of Israel had obeyed God's commandments and if they had listened to the voice of his prophets and followed his lead, then they would have had the perfect king. And that is where the people of Israel fail to see what they have and they ask for what they think they need but it is from an evil heart, an evil motive. That's why Samuel is displeased when this request is made to him. The thing was displeasing to Samuel, and Samuel had a sense. Something's not good. Something's not right here. And the more godly you are, the more you can trust your intuition. The more ungodly you are, the more you should question your intuition. That if you're a person who's lived a foolish life and rejected God's word and made mistake after mistake and have not conformed your thinking to God's word, then your intuition is going to be pretty misleading. You're going to think what feels right and it's actually wrong and you're going to 
feel something that feels wrong and it's actually right, and that's the way a lot of people are upside down in the world. But for a godly person who has been trained in godliness, who has his senses developed to be able to discern right from wrong, like Samuel, he gets a little warning flashing light. This, this thing is not good. There's something wrong here. And Samuel, not being all wise and all knowledgeable himself, he does what every wise and godly person should do, is he prays to the Lord. When you get that warning light and saying, something's not right here, instead of trying to figure it out on your own, you need to go to prayer and ask God for wisdom, ask God for insight. The scripture tells us in the New Testament, the book of James, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you lack knowledge, ask of God and he will give it to you because God is generous and gracious and he wants you to have wisdom. So ask in faith, believing that you will receive. Go to God like Samuel does. Samuel, he prays to the Lord as it says there, And the Lord responds and gives Samuel insight into the situation. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So here, the Lord's response gives us insight into what Samuel is thinking. Samuel, he's not only concerned on the spiritual level that something might not be right here, but he's also taking this kind of personal. That he's been the judge who's been ruling over Israel for the last... 40 years or however long it's been. And it's at the end of his judgeship that the people of Israel gather together and say, we don't want any more judges. Now, if you were in a position of authority and at the end of your time, people said, well, we don't really want that position in the church anymore. We're just going to get rid of that position. You might take it personal. You're like, what, did I do a bad job? You know, you're not happy with how things have been. And so Samuel is kind of taking this personal. And the Lord says to him, don't take it personal, Samuel that it's really not a rejection of you, that they're rejecting me. And this is something that is emphasized also in the life of Moses. Remember how Moses was rejected as a leader by his people? They would grumble and complain against Moses. You let us out into the wilderness to die. And you think that you're all that and you exalt yourself above all the people. And, And they grumbled and complained and rejected his leadership. Well, it wasn't Moses that they had a problem with. It was the Lord. And the Lord made that clear to Moses, and the Lord made that clear to the people, and once again we see that. And so you have to be careful that when you have an issue with the people that God has appointed as authorities in your life, stop and analyze. Am I really having an issue with this person, or am I having an issue with the Lord? If there's someone who's telling you God's word and you don't like what you're hearing, your issue is not with the person who's telling you God's word. Your issue is with God and his word. And so you have to go to scripture and find out. Is the pastor telling me God's word or is he telling me something different? And if he's telling you something different, then don't listen to him. But if he's telling you God's word, then don't reject the word of the Lord and pretend in your mind that you're just rejecting the person who's telling it to you. So we have to be careful. We can reject God and tell ourselves, well, I'm not really rejecting God. I'm just rejecting that person. And you see that repeatedly in scripture. So don't make that mistake. So Samuel, he's comforted by the Lord. The Lord says, it's not personal against you, Samuel. It's personal against me. And I'm actually going to give them what they want. He says, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. And God points out the history of Israel, that they have rejected God from the very beginning, from the day that he brought them up out of Egypt. Now, you could even go before that, and they were pretty slow to believe and trust in God even before they came out of Egypt. When Moses first came to them, they weren't very obedient and believing then either. But this is where God starts it on the day that he brought them out of Egypt. So even during Moses' lifetime, they were rebellious. Even all throughout 
their history, God says this has been their characteristic and that has not changed over these centuries. Their heart is still unchanged towards God. And God says, I want you to give them the king, but in verse 9 he says, I'm going to have you solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Israel demands a king, and the response of God is, okay, but be careful what you ask for. You've heard that before? Well, here's the premier example in the Bible of be careful what you ask for. What you think you need, well, it comes with cost. You see, we as a people, when we see something that other people have and we want it, what's that called? Covetousness, right? So here, the people of Israel were coveting a king. They're like, hey, all the other nations have a king, and look at how their king unites them and gives them military victory, and, and we need a king, like all the other nations. That's covetousness. And what covetousness does to deceive us is it only shows us the benefit of what other people have, and it doesn't show us the cost of what other people have. The covetous eye only sees the benefit and doesn't count the cost. For example, some people think it would be great to be rich and famous. But if you go and talk to people who are rich and famous, you might find out that they're not very happy. There's a cost that comes along with being rich and famous. But the covetous eye doesn't see the cost. The covetous eye just sees the benefit. Wouldn't it be wonderful to stand on a stage and have everybody cheering my name and, and going crazy for me? Well, there's a cost for that. And people are not very happy when they get into those situations. And sometimes they don't live very long when they get into that type of situation as well. So be careful what you ask for. Just because you think you want something doesn't mean it's going to be good for you. You need to learn how to think realistically and count the cost of what you are asking for. And that's what God's going to do for them. God's going to count the cost of having a king. You're only looking at the benefit side of the ledger when it comes to a human king. You're not looking at the cost side. So me as the prophet of God, Samuel says, let me lay out for you the other side of the ledger that you're not seeing. And that's what we see then in verses 9 through 22. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. And this is a key passage in the Bible for understanding our relationship to human government. It'd be nice if Israel could have just governed themselves underneath God's law, if they could have had local judges as God appointed to be able to decide cases between neighbor, if they could have had local leadership and functioned well underneath God as their king. That was the ideal. But the people of Israel were not able to live up to that ideal because they didn't follow God. And so they had all kinds of problems. The king is going to be somewhat of a solution for those problems, but he's going to bring his own problems with him. And this is what we see in verses 9 through 22. Pick it up in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Now there's going to be a key word that we're going to see over and over again throughout this reading. It's the word take. All right? So maybe count on your fingers how many times the prophet says the word take. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. 
He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So the people of Israel didn't know what they had. They didn't appreciate what they had. They wanted something else. And God says, all right, I'll give you what you ask for, but I'm going to tell you ahead of time, you're not going to like it. He's going to take, 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 take. That's what the king does. That's what centralized authority does. And those who are underneath the centralized authority, they become tax slaves. You will be his slaves. Now, the people of Israel don't experience this in the full until we get to the time of Solomon and his son, Rehoboam. And in the days of Solomon, the people are taxed heavily. And in the days of Rehoboam, the people of Israel, they come to the king at his coronation and they say, if you will relieve some of our tax burden and stop take, 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 taking so much, then we will follow you as king. And Rehoboam says, no, I'm going to take even more than Solomon took from you. And so the people of Israel cry out and they rebel against Solomon and they end up following Jeroboam, who's supposed to be the hero, come in and be the king who's not going to take so much from them. But you know what? Today's hero is tomorrow's tyrant. And so instead of supporting one king in Israel, now they get to support two kings with all their taxes because they've got the northern king and the southern king. And Great, that worked out well. So all throughout the rest of their life as a nation, they're crying out to God because they have to pay so much taxes. I don't know if you can relate to that type of opinion. It would be great if people could govern themselves and follow God and trust in God and have him deliver us from our enemies. But people can't do that, and so God gives us a human government which is very costly, very costly. God doesn't need all that, but the king, he does, and he takes. So that's what we see. Israel demands a king. They get what they ask for, but God warns them to keep a standing army to have the pomp of human rule, it's very expensive. It's also very expensive to buy votes. And so uh, we have a lot of that going on in a democracy where we have a different form of government, but still a lot of taking. Now, the second part of what we're looking at here in our outline, point number two, is that we have the first king that God chooses for the people of Israel according to their desire, a king like all the nations. And Saul is what they want. Saul is exactly what they want, and God gives them exactly what they want. Let's read about it there in chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read the first three verses. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So you have the tallest guy, the best-looking guy. This guy is the one that God has given all of these natural graces to, to be able to stand like a king, to look like a king. He plays the part. This is exactly what the people of Israel had in mind. Now, as the rest of the chapter goes along, we find the story about how God reveals to Samuel that this young man, Saul, is going to be the one to be anointed as king. And we're not going to read most of that story, but pick up in verses 15 through 21. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel 
Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Now Saul had been searching for some donkeys that had gone astray. And so Samuel mentions, As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom, notice this, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Well, there's a pregnant saying. That would get young Saul's attention. Basically, the prophet just told him that he's going to own anything in Israel that he wants. And so that's a surprise. And so Saul is shocked. And he says, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So Saul is given a hint. He's given a clue here about what God has in store. Samuel doesn't come right out and tell him, you're about to be anointed king. But instead, he lets him know that greatness is in store for him, that God has chosen him for something great. Because as a prophet, he's not just speaking from his own intuition, but he's speaking from the word of the Lord. And so then that's exactly what happens. Saul then is anointed as the next king. And it's done privately. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. In chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then he gives him the sign that is going to show that this is true. So Samuel, speaking the word of the Lord, says, It's not me who has chosen you. It's the Lord who has chosen you. He's the one who has anointed you. And the Lord is going to give you a sign so that you know. This is not some human idea. This is not some scheme. But this is really God's will for your life and for the nation. And of course, all that is in the sign comes to pass in the rest of the chapter. And so we're going to skip ahead in the story to where Saul is appointed in the assembly. He's anointed privately with the prophet so that he knows what God has in store for him. But now God has to show the people of Israel that this is the one whom I have chosen. And so God does it a little bit differently in public than he does in private here. Come down to verse 17 where Saul is going to be proclaimed king before all the people. Now, verse 17. Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel is this mighty prophet. He calls this huge convocation from all of the different tribes of Israel together at Mizpah. He declares the faithfulness of God, how God has been their mighty king, how God has been their mighty leader, but that because of their request, 
They've rejected God and they're asking for a human king instead. And so God is ready to give them what they asked for. So he has them present themselves before the Lord by their tribes and by their thousands. So then what does God do? Verse 20. Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So he's drawing names out of a hat, so to speak, where they're casting lots to see who has God chosen. And so it's not something that they can be accused of rigging. It's not something that they can be accused of, well, you just picked this group because of this political reason or because of that political favor. But we're going to say it's going to be God who chooses who the king is. And so they're doing it by lot. And you might think, well, that's just chance. I could pick anybody among the tribes and anybody among the people of Israel. Well, no. The Bible says that God is so sovereign, that God is so in control, that every die that is cast turns up the way that God wants it to turn. I remember verses like that when I'm playing board games. I'll be playing a board game with my brother, and you know, you'll cast the die to see who wins the battle, and, and you get like four sixes. You're like, wow, how did I get four sixes? And, and even in that, God is in control. There was one time we were playing a game and, and one person was getting all the good dice and one person was getting all the bad dice and the game was completely lopsided. And we're like, well, I guess God wants us to do something else because this is no fun. I'm getting demolished and you're having it too easy. So we went and did something else. And so you know, everything that falls out is by God's plan. And that's the, one of the strong themes here in this passage that we've already seen in several places is the sovereignty of God. So the lot is cast, and it's not going to happen by chance. God has already told Samuel who the king is going to be, and now God confirms it by the lot. It's not like this is a way to die and that Samuel is getting it so that it turns up with the tribe of Benjamin and then turns up with the clan of Kish and then takes Saul. No, this is completely legit. The lot just happens to fall on the one man out of all of Israel that Samuel had already anointed to be king. So the lot is taken and the tribe of Benjamin is selected. So the tribe of Benjamin comes near, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Where is Saul? Anybody seen him? You know, he's from your clan. Where, where did Saul go? So they inquired again of the Lord. Lord, where is this man that you have chosen? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So God says, look over there by the luggage. He's hiding over there. And so you see that, that Saul is not real excited about becoming king. He's a little timid. He's kind of humble. He's like, well, my clan is the smallest clan, and we're from this insignificant tribe of Benjamin, and being a king is a huge responsibility, and, and who am I? I don't have any military training. I don't have a big army. He doesn't really want the job, and yet... The prophet told him, and now the lot has been chosen, and, and he's kind of pushed forward. Here's your king. And they bring him forward, and it says, they ran and they took him, in verse 23, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the peoples from his shoulders upwards. This is the second time that the text has emphasized his height. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. So as the prophet, God gives the people the instruction through Samuel about what the king is supposed to do. What his rights are, what his duties are. You know, rights and responsibilities go hand in hand. This is part of the counting of the cost. 
And right now, Saul is mostly thinking about the responsibilities. He's not really thinking about the rights that he's going to have. He's just overwhelmed by the responsibility of, of being king over this people that's never had a king before. And that's quite a job to, to become the first king and to set it all up and put it in order. So he's looking at the responsibilities and he's thinking, I've got I to gotta get out of this if there, it's possible. But he can't. God has chosen him and he knows that it's, it's time. So the, the duties are the responsibilities and the rights of the kingship. He wrote them in a book and he laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. So you see two different responses here. Some people are men of valor, whose hearts God has touched, and they go with the one that Samuel has appointed, the one that God has appointed through Samuel, and they're like, this guy's going to be king. We're going to help him. We're going to do what we can to get this thing rolling. Those are the good men in Israel. However, you also see the bad men in verse 27. Some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? You know, he doesn't have any army. He doesn't have any experience. He's a young guy. Yeah, he's tall and good looking, but that doesn't win battles. And so these worthless men, they are doubting whether or not this is the right man for the job. And why do they doubt? Because they don't believe in Samuel. And if they don't believe in Samuel, they don't believe in the Lord. And if somebody doesn't believe in God's word and doesn't believe in God's truth, then God says, you're a worthless person. You're going to live your life in a way that doesn't help people. In fact, you're going to live your life in a way that's going to tear society and your family and yourself apart because faith is the way. Trusting in God's word, believing in God's promises, walking in the way that God shows you. And so those who line up behind what God is doing, they are the valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But those who are naysayers against what God has said, they are worthless fellows. And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. So Saul's not at that point in his career where if you disrespect him, he's going to put you to death. He's still feeling insignificant. He's still feeling humble. And so he doesn't have the gumption to take any action against these worthless men. And maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe at this point, holding his peace was probably the right thing to do. Now, that leads us into chapter 11, where we see Saul approved in battle. So God is going to show the people that, yes, I have chosen Saul, and it's not because he's a super genius when it comes to military matters. It's not because he's the most powerful warrior who's ever existed on the face of the planet who can defeat 37 men single-handedly. No, it's because I will be with him. It's because I, by my power, by my wisdom, by my grace, I'm going to deliver the people of Israel through the king that I've appointed. This is what makes Israel unique. This is what makes Israel different, is that whether they're led by a judge or whether they're led by a king, victory belongs to the Lord. He is their mighty warrior. So God proves that here in chapter 11, as we would expect. The main job of the king is to fight their battles. So let's see if God is with Saul to fight the battles for Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. So like, we can't beat you. Let's make a deal. We'll be your servants. Don't kill us. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. 
When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matters in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. So, the situation here, pretty tragic for the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Their enemy across the Jordan River, he is threatening them, and he's going to sack their town, take their stuff, and he won't make a deal with them that they could just become his servants unless they all present themselves to have their right eye gouged out. This is not what they want. So they ask for seven days to try to seek help. Now, if I was the Ammonite here, I'd say, no, I'm not giving you seven days. I don't want you sending messengers throughout all Israel. That seems like a bad tactical move to allow your enemy to send for help. But apparently, he's so confident that no one in Israel is going to come help them that he's like, sure, whatever, send your messengers out. No one's coming to help you. I know Israel. I know about how you're just this loose confederation of tribes. I know how you don't have any unity. You don't have any central authority. You don't have any king like us other nations do. And so I know nobody's going to come help you. They got their own problems with the Philistines and they got their own problems with this army and invasion over here and these raiders. He's like, sure, send your people. I'll wait seven days and then I can humiliate you, gouge out your eyes and make you my slaves. So for his own pride, he allows it. And the messengers come and they report it to Saul in Gibeah. Now they were sending messengers throughout all Israel, but some of them went to Gibeah. Now verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. What a kingdom, huh? He's plowing in the field with his oxen. Now not really striking the pose of a king. Normally kings have other people plowing their fields. But Saul's kingdom is pretty humble at this point. He's been appointed, he's been anointed, but he's plowing the field. And so Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they're crying out, they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Notice that, verse 6. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. Like, boom! It hit him like a flood. And when he heard these words, his anger was greatly kindled. This is the anger of God's spirit, the anger of God's jealousy for his people, where God says, if you touch my people, it's like you're poking me in the eye. And here, this pagan, Nahash the Ammonite, he's poking God in the eye. And quite literally, he wants to put out the right eye of all of God's children there in Jabesh Gilead. And so the fury of God's anger overwhelms Saul, and he takes his yoke of oxen, and he says, I'm done plowing. He cut them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Now notice Saul's here, powered by the Spirit of God, he takes action and he does the right thing. He tells the tribes, if you don't come and help out your brothers and sisters, then we're coming for you next. Anyone who doesn't come and join the army, the army that I'm building, we're going to come and destroy you. And so this is the fear of God that he's putting into the people. And not only does he say, come out after me, but he also says after Samuel. And this is wise on Saul's part, because Samuel has been judging the people now for decades. And he's recognized as the prophet, he's recognized as the judge, the leader, and Saul is this new guy, and nobody knows Saul, nobody respects Saul, he hasn't done anything yet. So when you put the new king together with the old judge, and that we're going out to fight the Lord's battles, and if you don't come join us, we're going to get you, well, this is what God uses to unite the people of Israel against the Ammonites. And so they all come. They come out as one man, as it says in verse 7. When he had mustered them at Bezek, it goes 35 miles north, 
to Bezek, and from there he's just got to cross the, the Jordan River to go over to Gibeah. And so he musters them. The people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. So he gets a big army. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. I bet they were pretty happy to hear that. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, notice what they say, they say unto Nahash the Ammonite, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, this is another case where in warfare you see some deception. And I don't think that the scripture is necessarily condemning the men of Jabesh Gilead here for their lie, but it doesn't also commend them. And so you could have a debate as to whether or not this was the right thing for them to say. I tend to think it was all right. I think in some situations it's all right to deceive in war. And so they say, tomorrow we're going to give ourselves up. What they don't tell them is, tomorrow there's going to be 300,000 soldiers coming and destroying you. We'll leave that part out. And so, the next day, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. They were running every which way, every man for himself, as we like to say. That's the way the scripture says it, that no two of them were left together. Every man for himself. And so, the kingdom is established under Saul because of God's work through him. It's the Spirit of God who gave Saul the power to be able to do what he did. And the people said to Samuel, verse 12, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Right on. Saul, you got a great start here. You've given the Lord the glory. You're not taking personal vengeance. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So they should have had a kingdom already, but people didn't really know or believe or follow Saul. And now here, he's proven as God's choice as king. And so this is the beginning, the renewal of Saul's kingdom. All the people went to Gilgal. They made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, sacrificing peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, so far so good. This, this first king is working out. He's not taxing the people. He's defeating God's enemies. Maybe everything is good. Maybe there's no problem with having a king. Well, God is very gracious. And God is going to give them many blessings through Saul and through David. However, that's not the end of the story. We don't stop reading the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 11. The story continues. And everything that God said will come true in time. Just because it doesn't happen immediately, don't think that there aren't consequences for bad ideas. Bad ideas have consequences even if they take years, decades, or generations to play out. And we see that time and time again. People do a bad thing, they think, oh, no consequence, it's fine. They do it again, they build up, and then finally the consequences catch up to them and just bring great destruction. So, God wants to remind the people, as they're rejoicing greatly, as they're getting behind Saul, Samuel has another word of warning that we want to focus on here. Samuel's final warning in chapter 12. So let's read that. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Hurrah! And now, behold, the king walks before you. Hurrah! 
oh, long live the king. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, that's Saul, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. So, from the very beginning, God wants to firmly establish before people, before earth and before heaven, that there was nothing wrong with the judges. That God gave the people the judges and that that was good. And that Samuel was the best of the judges that they had. And so their request for a king did not have anything to do with a flaw in what God had given them. There was nothing wrong with the system that God had set up. And so if there was something wrong and it wasn't in the system that God had given them, then where is the flaw? What's the real problem here? That's an important question to ask. You see, mankind is always looking for better methods. Mankind is always blaming the system. It's this evil system that is set up. And God says, oh no, there's nothing wrong with the system. But there is something wrong. The problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. The problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. You can't blame the system for your problems. You need to blame your sinful heart for your problems. It's out of the heart of man that proceeds all of the thefts, all of the adulteries, all of the blasphemies, all of the evil. Jesus Christ put his finger on the problem. And it's not out there. It's in here. And it's not in some people. It's in all people. The problem is not those people. The problem is people. And the problem is people's hearts. That's what Samuel's going to identify here as the witness of the Lord. Nothing wrong with the judgeship. Let's look also at verses 6 through 11. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent them Jerubbabel, that's Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, that's the one we just read about, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. The Lord your God was your king. He defeated the Egyptians. 
He defeated the Philistines. He defeated all of those who had oppressed you. Now, behold, he says in verse 13, the king whom you have chosen. What a sourpuss. You know, we were having this celebration. We won this great victory. Saul's here. We're rejoicing before the Lord. Peace offerings. Behold, the king that you have chosen for yourself. The Lord has set a king over you. Samuel wants the people to know this changes nothing. The essence of what he's about to tell them, whether you have a judge or whether you have a king, it changes nothing. Because the problem is not whether you have this form of government or that form of government. The problem is whether or not your heart is right before the Lord. Mankind's always tinkering with the system. It's not the system that needs tinkering with. It's the heart that needs changed. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Man is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Man is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. So he tells them, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. That's where success comes from. That's where victory is. If you will fear the Lord and serve him alone and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. Here's your king. Here's you. Follow the Lord. Nothing has changed. If you follow the Lord, it'll be well. If you don't follow the Lord, well, what does he say? Verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain which is very rare during wheat harvest. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. That's what he told them at the beginning. That's what he's telling them here at the end. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. That's idols, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. What does a godly leader do? He instructs in the good and the right way, and he prays for the people. And what are the people supposed to do? Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Think about what great things God has done for you. And so serve the Lord with all your heart. Follow his commandments. Walk in his ways. But if you do Wickedly still, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. There's nothing wrong with the kingship per se. What's wrong is the reason why they wanted the kingship. God had planned for the people of Israel to have a king, and a generation later, I think, whether they'd asked for a king or not, he would have given them David. But they're early, and their motives aren't right. 
And so they ask for a king at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. God is gracious and he gives them what they want. And it starts off pretty good. But over time, it's going to get worse. And when you come to the end of the story of the kings of Israel, which is just beginning here, there's a hope that is given to us among the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the twelve, they come along. And they start talking about the seed of David. They start talking about the root and offspring of Jesse. And they talk about the one who is going to be king forever, not only over the people of Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And in him shall the nations hope. Here we are, gathered in his name this morning, singing songs of worship to the one that God has anointed to be king of kings and lord of lords, in whom is the hope of all peoples on the earth. And we're going to keep on proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, Jesus as the hope, Jesus as the savior of the world, and encouraging people, exhorting people to fear the Lord, to turn away from folly, turn away from idolatry, to repent, and to seek the Lord with their whole heart, believing on the one whom God has appointed.